Do you enjoy a good picnic? Let's go to a picnic together this afternoon. Can we do that? Sorry for the late notice. It's kind of an impromptu picnic. I'm inviting between 10 and 20,000 guests. By the way, there's no money to pay for it. And the guests will be starved. They haven't eaten for days. But don't worry. We have some food already good to go. We've got five biscuits, little fish relish. We need to make it work. Any takers who will do that for me this afternoon? Is there anybody who will? Where's Libby? She'll tackle anything. Oh, no. Well, I think you've seen a little bit about the idea of Mission Impossible. This is something that is not going to happen. It would take a miracle if anything like that did happen. Well, we've heard this story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children so many times and from so many early ages that we have to be careful not to turn off the important lesson that God has from it for us even here this morning. By the way, this is the only miracle outside of Passion Week that is included in all four of the Gospels. And we're going to hear a harmony of those right now. Our readers are going to be reading, and we're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will hear maybe a little redundancy, but I think that that will help for us to be able to see all the nuances. There are a lot of things that when we put it all together, we can say, oh, I understand fully what this picture is all about. And as you hear the reading, I'd like for you to try to figure out what the big idea is, what the main idea, what is it that God really wants for us today? The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, said to him, But Jesus said, They need not go away. 
You give them something to eat. And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. As much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. And those who ate were five thousand men, besides women and children. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Thank you, gentlemen. One story, four perspectives, four writers, and today four readers. So once again, I ask, feel like a picnic? We won't wait till this afternoon. Let's have our picnic right now, and let's ask ourselves some questions about this picnic. What is the big idea? What is the main lesson of this great miracle that the Lord Jesus performed? Is it that God wants us to have rest? Is that the big picture? Because it certainly was there, and he does want us to have rest. He told the disciples, this is a paraphrase, but he told them before, come apart so that you don't come apart. Uh, there is a need for rest, but that's not the big picture. That's not the big story. That's not the main idea of this particular miracle. Matthew 11:28 tells us, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that certainly is something very, very significant, very important. But again, that's not the big idea because the apostles were supposed to be getting some rest and it got canceled. If you picked up in the reading, the Lord Jesus and the apostles were going to a, a place in solitude, a desolate place. They wanted to be alone. They'd had a tough time, but it didn't happen because the crowds actually beat them there and were waiting for them when they got there. Okay, maybe the main idea is this. Is it that little is much when God is in it? We saw that, didn't we? There certainly was a little that was there, and God was in it, and God could do wonderful things. But that's that's a valid biblical principle, but I still don't think that we've hit the big idea of this particular miracle yet. Is it that God multiplies what we give? Is that what it is? No. Is it that sometimes people prioritize or people priorities become more important than our own priorities? Because Jesus and the apostles had a different plan than what really happened. And when the people got there, everything shifted to the people. All of these are good. Is it don't waste food? Is that the big idea? 
And I was there. They gathered up the food afterwards. They didn't waste it. There were 12 baskets full, but I don't think that's the big idea yet. Is it that a young boy was willing to share his lunch? And the lesson is that all of us should be willing to share with each other. Certainly a valid point, but is it the big idea? Now, the big idea is on the screen right now. He is the one, the Lord Jesus is the one to turn to when we need help in difficult and puzzling situations. He's the one we turn to. And that's why I appreciate so much Frida singing that song for us today. That was a contemporary song, by the way. You know, my definition of contemporary, it's a song that is so old that you young people don't know it, have never heard it before. So when you do hear it, it's contemporary for you. It's an old song. Where could I go? Living below in this old sinful world, hardly a comfort can afford. Striving alone to face temptation sore. Where could I go but to the Lord? Think about this miracle that we've just been hearing about and we've, we've read about. Where could I go but to the Lord? What could they have done apart from Jesus to be able to satisfy the needs of all of those people who were there? That chorus, where could I go or where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul, needing a friend to help me in the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? And that's our reminder here this morning. Keep asking yourself that question. And if you know that song or if it's penetrated, where can I go? Where could I go but to the Lord? So we want to look at these words. We'll hear them again. I'm going to change it to where can I go rather than past tense. But where can I go other than to the Lord? Because some of us right now are involved in problems that to us may seem as great as feeding all of those people with such little resources. So when problems seem impossible, let's take a look at the problem the disciples had in this true story, but at the same time keep in mind the problems that you're facing. That deep hurt that's gnawing at you even right now. That dread, that worry, that fear, or if we want to be pious, we'll call it that Christian concern that you have right now. Whatever it is, it has your stomach tied up in knots. It has your joy on some kind of an extended vacation. And you know what it is, and the person next to you may not even know what that is, but you know what that problem is that seems impossible, and it keeps coming to mind. You wake up with it. You think about it. What am I going to do? Remember where you need to turn to. It doesn't mean you're absolved of any responsibility for solving a problem, but it means please understand you're not going to have to do this by yourself. The problem in Matthew 14, which is our basic text this morning, but then we uh, embellished that with the other gospel accounts. The problem's an easy one to understand. The apostles gathered around Jesus. They reported the success of their mission that is described in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. And in Luke 9, 1 to 6, I won't ask you to turn there, but during that time, Jesus sent the disciples out, and he gave them a very hard job to do. They had to go out into a hostile world and attack demons and heal sick and teach people who were probably not very teachable at that time. They came to Jesus after this was done for a debriefing time. They were worn out. 
badly in need of a rest. But wherever Jesus was, it didn't take long to turn that scene into Grand Central Station. There were so many people coming and going that the apostles didn't even have a chance to eat. Now think about that, Mark tells us. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He knew they needed rest. It says, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. That's part of a problem they're beginning to face. Problem that seems impossible, especially under their circumstances. They were in bad need of something that they were not going to get because the crowd was already there. So Jesus initiated a strategic escape for all of them, including himself. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, there's a clear inference that there was a connection between John's death and Jesus' desire for solitude. Because if you look at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 14, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he heard what had happened to John the Baptist. He heard that John had been beheaded. He knew that John had been executed. And... uh Of course, the disciples knew that same thing. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Jesus wanted to be alone, possibly to grieve, maybe to reflect, maybe to pray, maybe to do all three of those particular actions. But his compassion for people became the number one priority despite his own needs at that particular time. Luke records it this way in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Matthew put it this way, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, if that's all we knew, what Matthew said, we wouldn't understand that Jesus was there by himself, but his apostles were there as well. They were there to get some rest. Maybe they separated for a time. We aren't sure exactly what's happening, but we understand that Jesus and his apostles are off by themselves. At least that's the plan. That's what they want to do. But now the problem grew. Remember, they were hungry, they were tired. Jesus said, you need a rest, let's go get a rest. But they didn't have any leisure. They didn't even have time for eating at all. Add to their tiredness and hunger, their grief, maybe even some confusion over the death of John the Baptist. Must have been very discouraging when the crowds learned about it and followed Jesus. Some other words are used by Mark and Matthew that must have been discouraging also because it wasn't just a few people. It tells us a great crowd. It says so many people. It says got there ahead of them. Jesus got in a boat, headed to a desolate place, and by the time he got there, these people that he was trying to get away from beat him to where he was going. They could see where he was going. There were a lot of people there. It tells us there were 5,000 men. Someone must have counted. Probably Charlie Meister. He was, he was standing there counting how many there were. That didn't include women and children. 
Some people will estimate, okay, 5,000 men, let's add another 5,000 for the women and children, maybe 10,000 people, but who's to say what that number could have swelled to? Maybe there was a father and a mother and two children. If that were the case for each one, there would be uh, 20,000 people then, but there was a huge crowd. Uh, Picture maybe 20,000. Imagine a full house for a 76ers game. That takes a lot of imagination (laughs) these days. Those are the people you need to feed, uh, approximately that many, because the uh, capacity here is 21,600. Maybe all of those people were there with Jesus and the apostles, and they're needing to be fed. This was supposed to be a rest. doesn't look like a rest. You realize that there are times when In Christian service, you need a rest, and you don't get it because of people priorities or for other things. There was a time when our boys were very, very small. They were babies, and we had just come through. We called it Vacation Bible School at that time, and Beth and I were exhausted. She had a large responsibility at the Bible school, and we asked my parents if they would stay with our, or they would take care of our children overnight for a night. And we were going to go to the Sheraton Hotel just before you get to Delaware. We were going to go there simply to get a good night's sleep. That was the only thing we were going there for. And uh, we checked in, and it was about 2 a.m. when the first fire alarm went off. They evacuated the Sheraton out into the parking lot. And just in case it didn't wake you up fully, it was raining. And there we were in the parking lot. And these are approximate times because my memory doesn't tell me exactly. But we all came back in, got back into bed for that badly needed rest. And about 4 a.m., the second fire alarm went off. Same thing happened. We went back in. We're thinking uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of rest no matter what happens. But we tried one more time. 6 a.m., the third alarm went off. We carried our suitcases out with us and kept going. We tried that one other time. We went to a a particular motel or hotel, I guess it was a hotel. We went there strictly just to get a night of rest. No phone ringing, no children crying, nothing. And they put us right in the middle of the tall cedars of Lebanon who were having some kind of a raucous all-night party the whole hallway, and somehow they must have given them our room number as the central headquarters for everybody to come. Because all night long, drunken people were banging on our doors and trying to get in, and the, uh, the noise was, was tremendous. There are times when you're badly in need of rest and you can't get it. This was one of those times for the apostles. I think the disciples may be excused a little bit if they were disheartened when Jesus had compassion on all these people. They would have rather he had compassion on them. And I'm I'm sure that he did, but not in the same way. Matthew and Mark's word was compassion. Luke used the word, he welcomed them. In Matthew 14, verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed them. They're sick. When he went on shore, he was in the boat. He got out of the boat and he went in there. And there was that crowd 
already. Whatever they had hoped for, the disciples were not going to get any time soon. Jesus saw the crowd as sheep needing a shepherd, not as an obstacle to eating and resting. And that word compassion is a very interesting word. It's an intense word. It comes from the root word viscera, the word for stomach. It has to do with deep, tender emotions or tender mercy. Jesus felt for these people in the pit of his stomach because that's the way Jesus relates to his sheep. That's the way he relates to us in our problems. He has compassions. Where can I go but to the Lord? Why would I want to go anywhere else than to the one who can do absolutely anything, who has my problems in the pit of his stomach having compassion for me? Jesus gave them the teaching they needed. He gave them the physical healing that they needed. He gave them time and attention. That crowd had to be tired after a while. It was late in the day. It was spring, probably mid-April. The sun set about 6 o'clock in Palestine at that time of year. So it was sometime probably after 4 o'clock, maybe maybe closer to 5 o'clock. Some of these people had run eight miles. They had to have done that to get there before Jesus got to the place where he was. Jesus and his disciples had traveled by boat about four miles. By land, it was eight miles. The boat might have run into some strong headwinds, or they stopped the fish, or they did something. But they weren't able to do what they wanted to do. The big problem, though, was not with the disciples. It was with the crowd. It was late. The place where they found themselves was remote. They needed food. Luke tells us they even needed lodging because some of them weren't going to make it back to where they needed to go before dark. The obvious solution to the disciples was basically to say, hey, guys, you've got a problem. You're dismissed. Go somewhere and get something to eat. Go somewhere and get a place to stay. That was the disciples' solution to the problem. It's not our problem. But the big problem was when Jesus said to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Can you imagine being the disciples at that particular time? Remember that crowd that we just saw pictured in the stadium or in the arena? You give them something to eat. Again, remember, they didn't have resources. They didn't have a budget for this kind of thing. There weren't any stores that were nearby at all. So we've got a big problem. And that you, I've got it underlined on the screen, got it highlighted a little bit. That you is emphatic. It's in the imperative. It was an order. It was a non-negotiable order. It was an impossible demand. Ever felt like that's what you've been given in life? Your circumstances right now, your situation, it's an impossible situation you've been given. Well, back at that time, it was a large, hungry, tired crowd, late in the day, far from home. Something had to be done, and Jesus said, you guys do it. You disciples, this has now become your problem. But now let's think not about that situation Let's think about your problem again. What is your problem? Are you tired, 
hungry, worn out, far from home, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally? Do you have a real pressing need? Is it a problem in school toward the end of the year that you think it's impossible? Is your problem your spouse? Probably your problem is your spouse's spouse. Is your most pressing concern some type of a health situation? Is money bothering you? You have too much? Or maybe too little? Are your children wearing on you? And maybe not wearing very well? Are you discouraged? Maybe depressed and you don't even have any idea why? but you know that it's there and you know what that feels like and it's an ugly feeling. Is your problem part of midlife crisis? Or maybe it's an early life self-image problem that you've never been able to shake because when you were in middle school or for some of you in junior high school back in the day, they used to call you names and make fun of you and even give you nicknames that have never been able, you've never been able to shake them. You still think of yourself the way they used to make fun of you as? Or maybe you've got the geriatric, geriatric jitters. Some of you know what that is. Some of you will find out what that is. Whatever it is, stay tuned for the next couple of minutes. God knows and God cares. He turns our troubles into blessings. He takes things that make no sense and makes the situation turn out right. A lot of things does. They don't make any sense at all. Let me illustrate something here. Without prop, proper punctuation, sentences can be meaningless. I've got something on the board. If you can't see the screen, it says that, that is, is, that, that is not, is not, is not, that it, it is. Just all written together, no punctuation. Can anybody make any sense out of that? Okay, let's punctuate it. That that is, is. That that is not, is not. Is not that it? It is. Now that doesn't make a whole lot more sense, but it, it makes sense when punctuated. The significance of the 16 unpunctuated words is not what they say, but what they don't say. Because they say nothing. Without that punctuation, we look at life with no punctuation. Jesus is the one who puts the punctuation in. He's the one who turns our troubles and our confusion into blessings. He makes sense of the senseless. It's like the tapestry. We, we wouldn't want to look at the back of it. It doesn't make any sense to us. But the front of the tapestry is where the design is seen. And that's where Jesus is for us all the time. No punctuation on the screen. The letters G-O-D-I-S-N-O-W-H-E-R-E. -E, no spaces between them. Think about what that is. How many of you think that it says, how many of you are thinking God is nowhere? Come on, you can put your hand up if that's what I look like. Okay. How about this, though? God is now here. How many of you saw God is now here? The point, once again, that it's Jesus, God himself, who punctuates, who puts the spaces in where we can't see them, who makes sense of life. A lot better when we see the punctuation that God is now here 
than if we're left to believe that God is nowhere. When problems seem impossible and when solutions seem implausible, that's when we understand that's when we need the Lord. There weren't many resources to throw at the problem back here during this miracle. Ever feel that way too? I don't have a whole lot to offer to try to solve this problem that I have right now. They couldn't take what amounted to eight months' wages and go and buy food. They didn't have that kind of money. Philip was the one who made the comment about the eight months' wages or 200 denarii. Do you get the idea the disciples are a little testy, maybe, at that particular point when Jesus is putting them to a test? They didn't get the rest and the meal they wanted. They were given mission impossible. You give them something to eat. Now remember, when the solutions seem implausible, where can I go but to the Lord? What other resources do we really need? Now actually, Philip was being tested. John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And we only get this in John. We don't get this from the other Gospels. That's why I think this is so vital for us to be able to compare and harmonize the four Gospels. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, obviously, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus understood what was happening, but he wanted to test Philip. And Philip didn't pass the test. That's when he said, eight months, where are we going to find eight months wages in order to buy that food? Philip understood the resources are quite, quite slim at that particular point. So we've got a situation where Philip and all the apostles are being tested. Why? To see if they understood the true resource of the Lord Jesus, who is never not there for his sheep. Will you turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. The Apostle Paul shows us exactly the same thing. He's going to show us an impossible problem, an implausible solution. And then he's going to show us why he was in that situation and what could be done about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. This is part of his testimony to the Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. Now here's an impossible situation. For we were so utterly burdened. Now notice already, we've seen the word affliction. Utterly burdened. This is a big problem with an implausible solution because he says we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength and so much so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's an impossible problem with no solution in sight. Why? He concludes by saying, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
And if God can raise the dead, he can take care of our problem, even if it seems as if we're going to die as a result of it. Where could Paul go but to the Lord? Why did God put him through that test? Why, he says, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Jesus questioned the disciples. He sent them on an inventory check to see how many loaves were available. The results were not encouraging. Andrew came back with the results. John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So there they are. Impossible situation. Implausible solution to their problem. Where can I go but to the Lord? The problem was there, limited resources, but there was Jesus standing right there. Well, that doesn't compute, does it? How can you have an impossible situation and no resources if Jesus is standing right there? We do what we can, and we trust him completely. He's the problem solver. Please don't ever leave him out of the equation. Don't ever think you're in this alone. Don't think impossible. Think Jesus. The disciples had seen what Jesus could do. Why hadn't they focused on him? Why hadn't they tapped the great power available to them? They'd seen what Jesus could do. They'd seen miracles now by this time, lots of them. They were even entitled to perform some of these miracles by the Lord Jesus. But you know what? We do the same thing. We have the record of all of this, including the resurrection. We're looking back at the resurrection. They hadn't seen it yet. And still, we live lives of despair. We spend our energy, we exhaust our emotion on this problem and that problem, but not the provider. What do you see in adversity? Do you see the problem magnified, or do you see God magnified? Did you ever notice that the longer you look at the problem, the bigger it grows? Did you ever notice that the longer you look at your resources to solve your problems, the smaller they grow, if you leave Jesus out of the equation? Jesus wants us to realize that he is the one to turn to for help in our most difficult and puzzling situations. What does Jesus do? Jesus meets needs. How did he do it here? He took what was available. He multiplied it, took what was offered, looked small, became great when it was given to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 9 describes a boy in the crowd. In the original language, the word for boy is a diminutive. You could call him a small boy. Mark chapter 6, verse 9 mentions the five barley loaves, the two fish, Carried by a small boy, we have to figure they're also small. So far, we have one small boy, five small barley loaves, and two small fish. Don't be fooled by the use of the word loaves. Five loaves of bread. Five loaves of our bread would fill a shopping bag. These loaves were the size of a dinner roll. So we're not talking about something that even in our wildest imaginations could feed anybody, but it's even smaller than we think. Barley loaves were the cheap food of the common people. That kind of bread was considered to be an inferior kind of bread. It was worth half as much as wheat bread. 
Pliny and some other Jewish writers describe barley as food fit for beasts. It's what they didn't give people ordinarily, but horses and cows. And don't be fooled by the word fish either. This was not Jonah's great fish. The two small fish were equally non-impressive to the loaves. Word for fish literally means a little relish, a dip to use with bread. Salt fish were commonly used for that purpose at that time, so the word came to mean fish of a particular kind, small, nothing of themselves, only used to garnish other food. The only thing that was there for a picnic in quantity was grass. And they weren't horses and cows, so that's not going to help much. So with some horse fodder, relish, a small boy, some dinner rolls, and a lot of grass, Jesus would meet the need and solve the problem. There still would be a great, great picnic. Did Jesus demonstrate that he's the one to turn to for help with problems and concerns? He did. He demonstrated that to the people. And once again, we only find this in John. We don't find this in the other accounts. But a, a very fitting conclusion to the whole matter. John six fourteen and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, when they saw what Jesus did, he took the loaves and the fish and he, he blessed them. He broke them. He distributed them through the, the apostles. The people ate. Everybody was satisfied, well satisfied. They had 12 baskets left over. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come in to the world. The one prophesied back in Genesis. The one they were looking for. This indeed is that special prophet, the Messiah, if you will. Perceiving then the Lord Jesus was, was thinking, they're about to come and take me by force and try to make me the king. So he withdrew again to the mountain, this time by himself. Well, Jesus had a plan. He was in control. Do you know what? There are some who try very hard to minimize the miraculous element of this sign. There are three malnourished theories that are prominent. Some people will say this, and and these are people that don't really want to believe in the supernatural. They don't want to believe that Jesus performed a real miracle. They want to try to fit this into rational thinking because Who in the world could do what Jesus did? And the answer is nobody in the world could, but Jesus could. Three malnourished theories. One of them is the food had been hidden in the boat, and they brought it out at the end, and uh, everybody could eat. That had to be a big boat, by the way. But that's how some people will, will try to take the supernatural out of this. It was brought out at just the right time after it was hidden in the boat. Some in the crowd had a lot of food. This is another theory. And because of the little boy's example, they shared what they had. Does that seem to fit the facts that we have? I don't believe anybody would say that. Others will say this is just an allegorical illustration of Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will add it on to you. So this is just a made-up story to prove that point once again. But how could any of these explanations excite the people that Jesus was the Messiah? How could we go back to John 6, 14 and 15, and how could all of these people see what was going on and say, this must be the Messiah, if some of these naturalistic explanations were the ones that were, really had taken place? So we see three malnourished theories. None of them are any good at all. 
I hope the real explanation can excite us and comfort us today as it did those people who are recorded in John 6, 14, and 15. The real explanation, where can I go but to the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the disciples were tested. There are disciples here today who are being tested. There are those who are going through problems that seem impossible. There are those to whom solutions seem totally improbable. Where can they go? Where can any of us go but to you? Thank you so much for being the God of miracles, the God who has compassion on us, the Lord Jesus who in the pit of his stomach feels for our infirmities. We thank you for that. Give us confidence as we face the day that we don't face it alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.